The year is 1960. The young senator from Massachusetts, John F. Kennedy, gets elected president. Bill Mazeroski of the Pittsburgh Pirates hits the only walk-off home run in World Series history to beat the Yankees. And Forrest Parry, a 39-year-old engineer at IBM, invents the mag stripe card. It all began when the CIA tasked IBM to create a plastic ID card for them. Parry was already an esteemed engineer at IBM. He pioneered checkout systems that used UPC barcodes and advanced optical character readers for post offices. So, plastic ID cards. This should be easy, he thought. Parry's idea was to glue short pieces of magnetic tape to each plastic card. But no matter what kind of glue he tried, he couldn't get it to work. It always warped the tape, rendering it unusable. So, Parry returned home after a long, unproductive day at the lab and did what all great men do went to his wife for help. Harry's wife, Dorothea, was in the living room ironing clothes with a flat iron while listening to her husband's magnetic stripe woes. As he explained his inability to get the tape to stick to the plastic in a way that would work, Dorothea suggested that he use the iron to melt the stripe onto the card. He tried it, and it worked. The heat of the iron was just high enough to bond the tape to the card. And that is how the ubiquitous mag stripe card came to be. The same mag stripe you see on credit cards, and the same mag stripe card found opening doors of many dorm rooms across the country. But the mag stripe's days are numbered. Technology is moving forward faster than ever, and while Forrest Parry's invention will inevitably be relegated to the history books, the future is pretty exciting. I'm Brian Adolph, and this is Unlocked, a podcast series about campus physical security from Asa Abloy. If you're looking to install a new door access system for your campus, or you're finally upgrading from a legacy system, you have a lot of decisions to make. Not only do you need to choose the right access software and locking hardware, and you need to find a knowledgeable and trustworthy integrator to install and service your system, but you also need to determine which card technology is right for your campus. And this last task is not always as easy as it might seem. Whether you call them credentials, badges, or ID cards, today on Unlocked, we take you deep into the world of access card technology. We'll talk about many of the misconceptions and mistakes campuses can make when choosing a new access card. We'll also take a peek at what's in store for the future of the credential. And trust me, it's pretty cool. So stick with us as we unlock the smart card. You hear terms like smart card, contactless, and mutual authentication thrown around. In a previous career, I helped university CIOs and IT directors figure out the best choices for physical security. I found the biggest misunderstanding always came down to the access cards. A lot of technology is packed into the cards, and a lot of marketing materials surrounding which cards are best for you. It can be difficult to figure out exactly what your campus needs and what you don't. To make better sense of this all, I think it helps to understand how we got from Forrest Parry's mag stripe of the 60s to the smart card options we have today. Mag stripe cards are pretty simple. You swipe the card in a reader, and that reader reads a sequence of numbers stored on the stripe of that card. Mag stripe cards are still used on many campuses for their door access. Main reasons being the cards are inexpensive, the cost to replace the existing swipe readers is high, and other systems aside from security still rely on that technology, namely Campus One card systems that use the card for dining, laundry, vending, bookstore, and other purchases. But outside of higher ed and older hotels, no one really uses Mac Stripe cards for door access. 
In the 90s, the access control industry made a wholesale shift from MagStripe to the new contactless technology called Prox, also known more officially as low-frequency proximity. You surely know what a Prox card is. In the corporate environment, you see them used in buildings everywhere. When Prox cards came out, everyone was thrilled. The MagStripe card required physical contact with the readers by swiping it. People found them cumbersome and inefficient. Not to mention administrators felt the financial sting and maintenance headaches from broken cards and physical wear on the readers. Prox solved these problems. Lower maintenance costs, increased user convenience, and new options for form factors like FOBs made Prox cards a winner. But Prox technology is not without its limitations. Just like the MagStripe, the Prox card is unencrypted and static. The number on the card can be read in the clear, making the cards easy to clone or forge. You also can't encode any additional information into the Prox cards, like multiple IDs. In my version of the story, the people in charge of everything took a good look at the Prox card. They were thrilled with all the advantages it had over the MagStripe in terms of convenience and reliability. But when seeing that the credential was still unsecured and could be cloned even more easily than a MagStripe card, someone spoke up and said, This is dumb. And thus, the smart card was born. It didn't really happen like this, but now you're caught up to present day, where the contactless smart card is the current reigning champ. The biggest technology difference between contactless smart cards and contactless prox cards is the frequency of the chip inside. Prox cards use a low-frequency, 125 kilohertz technology, whereas the new breed of smart cards use a high-frequency, 13.56 megahertz technology. Okay, before it gets too confusing, let's talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do to help me simplify this. Whether it's a, a prox card or a smart card, at the end of the day, it's a chip and antenna that's inside a piece of plastic. That's Eric Widlitz. He's been in the security credential business for over 20 years and is now a vice president at Vanderbilt Industries, an access control software manufacturer. And he's going to tell me how the smart card actually works. When you bring that card near a reader, that reader will actually charge up that card uh, and give it enough power to communicate information back to the reader, which gets sent up to the access control system. So that's really all that's happening, whether it's a, a prox card or a smart card, is it's getting its energy from the reader and then transferring information back to the access control system. A source of confusion unique to higher ed when it comes to smart cards is the term itself, smart card. While smart card is used universally in other verticals of the physical security industry, in higher ed, we tend to refer to them as contactless cards. Why? Well, here's a little history lesson. A bunch of years ago, smart cards became popular in a handful of large universities for student purchases like vending and laundry and for meal plans, what we now call one card systems. These smart cards were of the contact chip variety. The eventual problem with them was the money was stored offline on purses on the card. As networked online systems gained in popularity, these smart card systems became irrelevant. I think just about all of those smart card systems have been ripped out and replaced on the campuses who used them. And because of that experience, the term smart card, when talking to campus folks who also deal with the one card payment side of the credential, has left a bad taste in their mouth. That is why most vendors dealing with the payment side refer to the newer technology cards almost exclusively as contactless. So you see how confusion can arise when a one-card vendor calls them contactless and a security vendor calls the same card a smart card. To me, a smart card is a smart card, whether it's a contactless smart card or a contact chip. 
Thanks, Eric. So now you know, most people in the security industry will use the term smart card to encompass pretty much all types of contactless card that aren't procs. So what about procs? Is there any reason to continue using the older technology? I wondered, who still does use prox cards? It's definitely the most popular, but I would say over the last probably four or five years, we've definitely seen a transition to, you know, smart card technologies. Um, and there's no reason not to. I mean, you certainly have a gigantic installed base of prox technology that you'll continue to support for uh, a long time moving forward. But smart card technologies today, from a cost perspective, are pretty much the, the same price. And in some cases, they may even cost less money than a, a proximity card. So there is absolutely no good reason today, starting with a new fresh install, why you would ever put in proximity technology or put in MagStripe technology, you know, for that matter. You should always think about moving forward with some smart card technology. As I mentioned earlier, another advantage of smart cards over procs is the ability to store and secure other useful information on the card itself. A prox card is kind of like a, a license plate. You, it will transmit one ID number to the system, and that is all it is capable to do, and it's not secure. On a smart chip, you have multiple different kind of containers that you can store different applications in. Each one of those containers is secured. Think about it as like a filing cabinet, and you have a key to each one of the drawers on a filing cabinet. There's an encryption key that secures the information that's on that card for each one of those different applications, so it can be used for multiple different types of applications where you can't use any of the previous technologies for that. The difference in frequencies between the prox card and the smart card can affect performance, but not in the way you might think. Typically, the difference in frequencies sometimes will have an impact and effect on your read range. So typically on the 125 kilohertz, the prox technology, which people have been using for the past 20, 30 years, you get a little bit longer read range than you do with a smart card technology, which is typically at 13.56 megahertz. So you get a slight reduction in read range with smart cards, and typically the read time and the communication time between the card and reader is a little bit longer. This can be a surprising revelation to schools. Many schools adopt the smart or contactless card for the sake of convenience for their students, and then are surprised to find out the read range is limited on the smart card. I've seen this firsthand. A school goes ahead and purchases contactless cards, excited that their students will no longer have the inconvenience of needing to tap their cards on devices. You know, because contactless. Only then to find out that contactless cards actually take more time to read than the old prox cards they just replaced. Eric agrees. You definitely take a, a little hit on the convenience side, on the speed and, and read range that you have. But you have the insurances that, you know, your information is secured on that card and people can't take that information off of your card. Hmm. Very interesting. And something to keep in mind when your campus starts discussing the benefits of smart cards. Luckily, as people are getting used to the longer read times of EMV credit cards, they are less prone to notice the slight increase of speed on the contactless cards over the prox cards. So to recap, here are three reasons to choose a contactless smart card over a prox card, or why you might consider upgrading from an existing prox card installation. Number one, contactless cards are safer. They can't be copied or skimmed in the way prox cards can. Two, they can cost the same, or in some cases, cost less than prox. And finally, number three, they can store additional data and be used for other applications, like transit systems.
Now, let's dive a little deeper into the security aspects of the smart card credential. For colleges and universities, one of the biggest benefits you'll hear is that the smart card is more secure than the standard prox card. That is because of something called mutual authentication. I asked Eric for his definition. I mean, we'll, we'll give it a shot on kind of the, the, the simplest of terms. So, you know, a reader will kind of boot up a chip, start a chip. They'll start talking to each other and they kind of do a handshake to authenticate each other. And if they authenticate each other, then the smart card will start releasing the information that's being asked for. So there's kind of think about it. There's a, a couple of tests that the card needs to go through to make sure, am I talking to the right type of card? Should I be talking to this card? And if they have that right handshake together, then the, the, the process will continue and they'll continue talking to each other. If that handshake or something goes wrong in that initial communication, then pretty much it will end the communication between the card and the reader and they'll no longer talk to each other. It's based off of different encryption algorithms and different encryption techniques that I'm really not sure it's important to get into the, the weeds on that. Other than you know there's kind of a secure channel being set up to talk to each other. Um, and that's really what you, what's the important part. You need to understand and make sure you're picking a technology that's secure in the way that it communicates with each other. Make sure it's communicating to the right you know partner moving forward. And and that's it. When you think about it from a Magstripe technology or a Prox technology, none of that is happening. Pretty much what you're doing is you're reading information and sending it along. So there's no checks and balances. Am I talking in a secured way? Am I talking over a secure channel? Um, is the information secured on that card? None of that, you know, is on any of those previous type technologies. So you can get into the the weeds of this and the encryption and, and all of that different stuff. But I really don't know if that's, you know, important at this point in time, other than knowing that there's technologies available today that are very economical, if not less money than than some of the other technologies that are out there. Another common point of confusion to watch out for is the CSN, or card serial number. All of these smart cards have not one, but two numbers encoded on the card. One is the cryptography key that is used to mutually authenticate with the reader. You know, the reason you're purchasing the more secure card. The other is this card serial number, also referred to as the UID or unique identifier. This is a number burned into the card during the manufacturing process. If you are shopping for an access control system and want to use smart cards, be careful you know and understand the difference between these two numbers. And even today, people, you know, buy a smart card and then don't you really use it what it was intended for. So every chip has a unique identification number on it, but it is not secured in any way, shape or form on that card. So when you think about uh, purchasing a smart card, if you're using a serial number, it's no different than using a prox card because all it is is a single unique, you know, identifier on it. Um, that's being transmitted open and in the clear. There's no security behind that. That serial number is, is typically used just to be able to identify a type of chip. It's, it's not that serial number was really never intended to be used for physical access control and, and securing one's kind of identity within a security system. Hey, Eric, have you seen schools using the CSN? Not only schools, but large enterprises. And a lot of times it's because people don't understand or they may have a reader on the wall. It's very simple to build a reader today that will just read everybody's serial numbers because, again, there's no security or anything that's behind that. So, you know, sometimes some people may not have a choice if they've got multiple different buildings with different technologies. They can use that. I would always say use that as a way to help you migrate to a secure platform. But that should never be the intended use of a smart card is to use a serial number as an identifier. 
So I see the lesson here as be smart when planning a smart card migration and consider all aspects of the system so you don't end up with the most secure, most expensive smart card in the world without getting any of the benefits. If you're still confused by any of this or want to go deeper, there's a link in the show notes for this episode to a great white paper from HID Global called The Evolution of Cards and Credentials in Physical Access. You can read it at intelligentopenings.com slash unlocked slash four. Congratulations! You are now an expert in the latest and greatest in smart card technology. Time now to investigate the credential upgrade paths available to you. If you've listened to previous episodes in the Unlock series, you have, haven't you? Then you know with most physical security initiatives, a phased approach is suggested. Same goes for credentials. To make a migration easier, you can use what are called multi-technology or multi-tech credentials. These are cards that can have pretty much all of the card technologies on them. Here's Eric Widlitz again. It's really on a case-by-case basis depending on... on how you're structured today. So you could do a multi-technology card, which would allow you to put kind of, today I'm using Prox, in the future I want to use smart card technology. You put both of those technologies in a card, it's compatible with all your old facilities, and any of the new facilities moving forward, you put smart card readers on, that card will work on that, but the Prox technology won't work there. That requires you to rebadge your entire population in order for that to work. You can also get a card with Magstripe, 125 kilohertz prox, and the 13.56 megahertz smart chip. The Magstripe for your existing dining and financial applications, prox for existing access readers, and the smart chip for new and future readers you'll install as you over time migrate away from the prox readers. Also, the readers themselves, or locks with integrated readers, are available in a multi-technology flavor to accommodate whichever credential you are using. The other way is you can look at multi-technology readers and put a multi-technology reader on the wall that anybody that's new that comes to a facility gets a new smart card or we're slowly going to phase out the older technologies, that reader would be able to read the old card and the new card, but that's going to require you to go out and change out your entire reader population. So if you're not just talking about one site and it's a you know a global organization with sites all over the place, it might be very difficult to do that where a multi-technology card might be easier to help with you know that type of transition. Or there may be a combination of both multi-technology cards and multi-technology readers. And the readers are smart enough that you can set them to read one or the other technology within a card depending on what that facility is and the direction you know you want to go there but it really is a case-by-case you know basis to see what's the kind of most economical way to do it and what's the the fastest way to potentially transition you to us you know a, a more secure technology and a lot of that you know comes down to time and budgets and and other things a wise approach as you plan a migration is figure out which population on your campus needs which technology. That way, you're not purchasing the most expensive multi-tech cards for everyone, only for the students, staff, and faculty that require that card technology for the buildings they use. But that's where, you know, it's really important for somebody to sit down with that end user and really understand what it is they're looking for, what their time constraints are, what the reasonings to do things are, and come up with the best plan to get them there. Whew, that was a lot of information. We covered the genesis of the smart card, why it makes sense from a security and cost perspective to use them over Prox and Mac Stripe, and how to approach a phased migration. But I don't want you to get too hung up on smart cards because the future of the credential is just around the corner.
Where is credential technology going next? Will it always stay on the card? Everyone's always talking about phones, but there have been hiccups with that. Eric mentioned that Prox is a 20-year-old technology. What's being done to keep up? To answer that question, I tracked down Daniel Balin at an industry conference to find out. So I'm Daniel Balin. I am the director of, I got to think of my title is, I am the director of strategic business development and innovation for the HID PACS physical access control systems. And what exactly does that mean? Uh, that means that I get to work on next generation solutions, doing the planning and the research to figure out where we think the industry is going okay. and then start doing the strategic relationships to start to make that happen. Since it's the buzziest topic on campuses, let's start with the mobile smartphone and how it fits in with physical security. We're all used to carrying cards to open doors and gain access to other things such as locking indoor computers. It's a natural thing to say, now I want to go off and use my phone because I always have my phone with me. Often I have my card, but I always have my phone with me. And so that's where the focus has been most recently is talking about that through mobile access. Where that gets really interesting is, is that, okay, now I'm getting used to the idea of phones and, and which is now emerging. Uh, what comes after that? And the next thing is now, what about wearable technology, such as health and fitness devices? What Dan's talking about are things like Fitbits and Apple Watch or Android Wear type devices. And the idea being that if I can use my phone to open a door, why can't I use my wearable device? These new mobile technologies, like CIOS from HID Global, are designed to run on any smart device. So you can get them on smart cards, phones, and wearables. And even as the payment card industry is moving to the EMV chip, this technology can be put on there as well. So the idea is to give the, the people that manage the security in the organization, you know, the, the IT people and the security people, a choice of platforms they want to support and ultimately to enable the users to choose the device they want to carry. The past few years have seen mobile app proliferation on campuses, not only for unlocking doors, but making purchases, registering for classes, and even checking laundry machine availability. But it's important as devices and platforms advance that this type of credential technology is independent of the device that holds it. Who can predict which particular device is going to be the one that everybody wants? And in fact, if you talk to 10 people, you're going to get maybe not 10 answers, but way more than one or two answers for which device do you want. And the idea is people expect this ability to choose the personal thing they want. I want to pick this brand of phone. I want this color case. I don't want to use that app. I want to use this app. And so this is that natural extension of giving the marketplace more and more choices for that. Now, awesome technology often comes with an awesome price. I wanted to know, how can schools justify the cost of this technology when dealing with campus politics and budget cuts? We've been talking about this in the context of choice and making it optional. At the same time, the CIOS technology is far more secure than the legacy technologies that it's probably replacing. And again, it depends on the individual university, what platform is being taken out. But many of the technologies that are being used today are far less secure. So there's a need for them to have a plan to migrate to a newer, more secure technology anyway. Now, maybe they say we can't do it this year, okay, but to think that five years from now, ten years from now, you're going to be using the same platform that you were using ten years ago is a little naive. What other aspect of technology in your life would you expect to put something into your world, you know, a phone that we'd use five years from now, a laptop you would use ten years from now, nobody would expect it. And access control technology is starting to migrate and evolve at the same kind of cycles that we're used to seeing in other areas. That's a change to our industry. And the IT departments and the security departments have to start to plan for that. 
When it comes to starting the conversation about credentials with security and IT departments, Dan wouldn't recommend starting with the credential. Typically, I wouldn't say you just start with the credential. I'd say you would start with the solution of which are the use cases that we're trying to harden, right? So we have a use case to open a door into uh, a classroom. We have a use case of getting into a dorm. There's the perimeter secure area, and then there's the actual individual dorms. So let's now start talking about those use cases. A trend Dan and his team are seeing is the convergence of the budgeting process between the physical access side, the security side, and the IT side. And as those come together, then obviously they need to plan and budget together. But it starts with setting out a plan which is, okay, within one year, two years, three years from now, we have to be well on our way towards migrating to a more modern secure solution. So in the process of migrating to a modern secure platform such as CIOS, you now have the ability to also support phones. And not just NFC phones, which is the way some solutions work, but also the, the, the whole range of Apple iOS devices, right? Which, unfortunately, you know, Apple's chosen not to support NFC. And so you need solutions that work across Bluetooth. But it's the same consistent security model, regardless of whether it's across NFC, across Bluetooth, whether it's an iOS device or an Android device or uh, an Apple Watch or uh, a payment card. It's the same security model across all of those. So as an IT department, it makes your life simpler because you can give your users choices. Maybe you don't choose to deploy all those. That's your, your choice. But you can support a broad range of platforms with a consistent security model underpinning the whole thing. Just a side note that Dan mentioned Apple not supporting NFC, which at the time of my interview with him was true. Apple has since opened up support for NFC tags, but alas, still not to use the phone as a credential. Something Dan and others often see is people tend to try to solve the problem that's immediately in front of them. That's a normal thing to do, right? For example, you might conduct an audit and find you have a weakness because your campus uses a legacy technology, and you know you need to address that. But if you limit the scope to simply solve that immediate problem, you can miss an opportunity to address future issues. Like, when are you going to start to support phones? Don't think you're in a university environment, and three years, five years from now, you're going to tell your students you can't use phones. I mean, they're going to expect to do this more and more. So as you evaluate the platforms, be thinking about investing in a platform that has a roadmap to support everything that you think you're going to need. And even if you don't think you need it today, and maybe you don't have to have it today, it'd be naive to think you're not going to have to support these common platforms, phones, wearable devices, you know, in the next fill in the blank, one year, two years, three years. Finally, I asked Dan what he's most excited about. I, I think the wearable side of things is exciting. And the reason is, is that traditional card technologies can be used to authenticate to actually a phone as an endpoint. So let's flip this around. We've been talking about taking a credential that exists on a card and put it on your phone. Okay, that's, I won't say easy to do. It's well understood today at this point, but think about the power of what your phone's connected to and all the sensitive data and how do you secure that today? A lot of times it's secured through either a fingerprint on the phone or perhaps through strong passwords. What well, you could use your badge if you had the proper platform, you could authenticate with that card to your phone to unlock it. The challenge, of course, is, well, that's fine when, for me as an enterprise worker, when I'm in our office because I have my badge, what about on the weekend or after hours when I don't have my badge? But wait a minute, my wearable's always with me. 
So the wearable authenticates to my phone as an endpoint. My phone authenticates to the door as a credential. I watched Dan tap a prototype of a new wearable device to his phone to unlock it. It was pretty cool. So the exciting part is when you start to see these permutations become possible, and now it's just up to the, you know, the IT departments and the security departments to figure out which of those use cases are the ones we care about. That's where you start. Plan the use cases, and then make sure you've got a platform that supports those in the short term, and then the rest of the use cases you know will come over the next few years. Thanks for listening to this episode of Unlocked. Hope you found the information helpful. There's a lot more to learn about smart cards and other credentials. I recommend you check out some of the great research being done by HID at hidglobal.com. This podcast is produced by Riveting FM. You can find downloadable and easily shareable content related to this and other Unlocked episodes at intelligentopenings.com slash unlocked.